Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It speaks to several bifurcations in American art that Noah Purifoy, an African-American artist who spent his career in and around Los Angeles, can be described by Los Angeles Times art critic Christopher Knight as a, quote, pivotal American artist of the last 50 years, while the head of modern and contemporary art at the National Gallery of Art admits he had never heard of Purifoy before the NGA vultured the Corcoran Gallery of Art's collection. A new retrospective titled Noah Purifoy, Junk Data at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art should help fix some of that. The exhibition includes work Purifoy made between 1958 and his death in 2004 and includes both standalone sculptures and examples of installations that are usually only on view at Purifoy's famed Joshua Tree Outdoor Museum. The exhibition, which is on view through September 27th, was curated by Franklin Sermons and by my first guest, Yael Lipschitz. She's an independent curator and the archivist of the Noah Purifoy Foundation. On the second segment, one of the most significant American museum acquisitions of the year. J. Paul Getty Museum curator Annalise Demas joins me to talk about Bernini's 1621 bust of Pope Paul V, which had been more or less lost for a hundred years. How does that happen? We'll find out. But first, Yale Lipschitz, after the break. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Dear Nemesis, Nicole Eisenman, 1993-2013, on view at its La Jolla location from May 9th through September 6th. For 20 years, Nicole Eisenman has developed a creative vision that combines high and low culture with virtuosic skill. Fusing centuries-old art-making conventions and a multitude of art historic influences with contemporary subject matter, she has created depictions of community, identity, and sexuality. Her incisive socio-political critique operates through the quotidian and the absurd in ways that are both formally playful and visually breathtaking. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Having recently completed a major renovation of its Tatawando design building, the Pulitzer Arts Foundation is now open with three exhibitions, Calder Lightness, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces, and Fred Sandback 64 three-part pieces. On view through September 12th, the exhibitions offer visitors unique opportunities to experience the artist's works. The Pulitzer's expansive, light-filled upper level provides an ambiance that animates Calder's hanging mobiles and offers multiple vantage points from which to view these iconic works. In its first exhibition since 1975, Sandback's 64 three-part pieces makes a U.S. debut in one of the Pulitzer's new galleries, with a different sculpture presented every week. Installed by the artist himself, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces provides a rare opportunity to see a large concentration of these works from 1972. For more details on the exhibitions, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Gail Lipschitz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. So in your catalog essay, you call Noah Purifoy's Joshua Tree installation, quote, one of art history's wonders. So let's start there. What is it and what, and what makes it one of art history's wonders? Well, it's a 10-acre site in Joshua Tree that he constructed over the last 15 years of his life. So he moved out to the desert in 1989 from L.A. He was 72 and lived out there creating this installation until his death in 2004. So it is essentially one sort of total work with 
over a hundred large-scale sculptures, all created out of discarded materials, out of junk. And many of them take the form of large rooms that you sort of walk into as you navigate the site. So it has the feel of a small village as you as you wander from structure to structure. There are many pieces that are sort of traditional, freestanding, more you know medium scale sculptures, and then then these large sculptures as well. And then there's also an interior gallery which is a sort of retrofitted Quonset hut that he built and which houses a number of flat works, which he was creating the whole time he was out in the desert as well. And many of those are actually in our exhibition at LACMA. Purifoy has been making work since 1958, so obviously there's lots of work that predates the, the Joshua Tree installation. But could you describe how you've chosen to represent and include the Joshua Tree installation in the show? There's a whole essay in the catalog, too. We transported six large works from the desert floor with the idea that we wanted to give everyone a sense of the scale of the works out in Joshua Tree, but also understanding that it is not something that you can take up and move as an entire entity, nor would we want to do that. But we did want to give people the sense of of that experience out in, in the desert. So... Two works are actually outside at LACMA on the outdoor campus, very close to Michael Heiser's levitated mass, and that is Eau de Frank Gary and 65 aluminum trays. Eau de Frank Gary is one of the larger works on the site in Joshua Tree, and it was created out of shipping containers that came back from a show that Noah had at the Oakland Museum in 1998. The reference to Gary is a reference also to Noah's sort of architectural aspirations. So he said that it had been said of him that he was a failed architect, and you do get that sense on the site with these sort of, again, buildings that you sort of walk into and out of. And then the other four works are inside the Broad, and they are surrounded by the many flat works that Noah created over his long career. So as you mentioned, he was making works as early as the 50s, he started making art during his time at Chenard Art School. He entered art school in 1951, and Chenard is the institution that became CalArts. Purifoy was one of the first African-American students to be admitted into Chenard. It was a very segregated and, and you know racist town. So... After graduating, he worked for 11 years out of school as a designer of modern furniture. And the very first work that we have in the exhibition, earliest, is a headboard that he made in 1958, which has a sort of Noguchi biomorphic abstract feel to it. It was the headboard he used for decades in his apartment. And and it's one key to that early period of his career, which really did impact his work up through 
you know, many of the pieces he made in Joshua Tree, which have a real connection to design and to artists like Mondrian and, and that moment. So I want to come back to design in a moment, but before we wander completely away from, from Joshua Tree, I think it's worth noting that the other kind of major way that the Joshua Tree work is represented in the project is that you and the museum commissioned Frederick Nielsen to photograph it, and the catalog is full of those pictures. Yeah, so Franklin and I worked with uh, Frederick Nielsen, who took... Franklin Sermons, the curator of modern and contemporary art at LACMA. Yes, and my co-curator in this exhibition. We worked with Frederick, who took an amazing series of photographs out at the site and composed the bulk of the images in our catalog and, and give you a sense of the site in Joshua Tree. So many of the images show works that are not in the exhibition, of course, but it's an amazing object for art history to, to be able to look through this catalog and see the site, you know, preserved in this book. The pictures are also really good at indicating the intensity of the light out there, which was, which, which is extraordinary. It's, it, it's, it's pretty serious, <laughs> pretty serious sunlight. So you mentioned design a moment ago and how Purifoy starts as a designer. There's a great picture in the catalog of him posing with, I think if I remember right, it was a sideboard that he'd designed. So how does his activity as a designer and his engagement with design inform at least his early work? I mean, it informs, I would say, you know, his work up through his death. I mean, sometimes you you don't see that strain, but there is an interest in in modern design, in the way that designers and artists were looking at cubism and Mondrian and this sort of vertical and horizontal stacking and where to place objects that is very apparent and also sort of hard to escape as an artist or to, 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 to ever have sort of leave your, your thinking in terms of your compositional strategy. So you see it up through his work in Joshua Tree. And it was very important in sort of defining visual landscape of L.A., there was a big exhibition at LACMA a few years ago on California design, which was an exhibition that was held at the Pasadena Art Museum, which Noah Purifoy and his design partner, John Smith, participated in with a hi-fi cabinet. That, that photograph you referred to is Noah standing beside a hi-fi cabinet that he created with John Smith. And that also sort of opens on to the fact that jazz was a very important part of his life and his work. And so he designed also the sound systems that went in those hi-fi cabinets. And a number of works in the show reference his interest in jazz. Music in general was something that was always part of his life from early childhood. His older brother, Clarence Purifoy, played piano with Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey when they would pass through Birmingham. Purifoy was born in Alabama in a small town actually called Snow Hill, a rural area. And then when he was three, the family moved to Birmingham for work in factories. And that's where he lived up through high school. 
Larry Stokes Sims in a catalog essay references the work of Bertoia and Richard Artschwager in the context of, of Purifoy's design work and, and, and the way Purifoy transitioned from design to sculpture. Is that an example, Purifoy? Were those examples that Purifoy was aware of, conscious of, or is that, do you think that's more of an, an art historical contextualization after the fact? He was likely aware of Bertoia. He was in an exhibition with Richard Archsager in 1972 in Berlin, which was devoted to to work made out of recycled materials. But uh, yeah, there are a lot of connections and other artists that you could talk about in terms of making this transition from from design and commercial work. Like for instance, Purifoy also designed window displays for the Broadway department store here in now in downtown Los Angeles and for a design store called Canel and Chafin. And that's something, so he was doing this in around 1956. And that's the same year that people like Andy Warhol and Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns were designing window displays for the Bonwit Teller store in New York. So, you know, there's, you know, artists are looking for work and commercial work is often easier to come by and I think lends itself nicely to, you know, these artists' interests. You can certainly sort of have a whole discussion that looks at that sort of aspect and and track of art history. Purifoy is in many ways a a California-based assemblage artist in the lines of Betty Saar, Bruce Conner. Or George Herms, who made and make work in California, is that a lineage in which you think of his work, or do you think of him as as being separate from them, less engaged with them? No, I definitely think that you you have to understand his work within the context of California assemblage, which was the immediate sort of milieu that he emerged from. You know, Keenholz was probably the father figure of that movement here in L.A. and someone that he thought of him, thought of Keenholz as a colleague, you know, and, and they knew each other and were sometimes compared to each other in, in reviews and in exhibition reviews. So, you know, there was certainly a, a real movement here in L.A. that, Purifoy was part of and responded to, for instance, one of the artists in 66 Signs of Neon, which was a group exhibition that he, that Purifoy organized and spearheaded after the 1965 Watts Rebellion. He got together a bunch of artists, friends of his, together with a colleague at the Watts Towers Art Center, where he was the founding director. His colleague was Judson Powell, and Purifoy and Judson got a group and collected tons of debris from the streets of Watts, which was charred and, you know, molten by by fires. And they created a traveling exhibition called 66 Signs of Neon, which came out in 1966 and referred to the burnt neon signs that they had found in the streets along 103rd in Watts, which was the main commercial thoroughfare. So one of the artists in that exhibition was Gordon Wagner, who is part of 
the same California assemblage movement. But I would also say that the, the, the way to understand his work is broader than California and needs to take into account what's happening in New York and what's happening internationally. So Robert Rauschenberg is somebody that I think is very important to think about in terms of Noah's reference points and experiences. And of course, Rauschenberg was somebody who was exhibiting in LA at the Dwan Gallery. And But internationally, you know, I think that Italians like Alberto Burri and the Arte Povera artists are very, I think that it's very broad in terms of how one should understand the work art historically. You know, another way of thinking about the breadth of Purifoy's interest and intent is might might be this. So when 66 Signs of Neon travels, how many art museums does it go to and how many other type places does it go to? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, it went mostly to university galleries and student unions. It was a rather revolutionary exhibition, and this is at a time when the country did not look upon the art world in the country, you know, was not looking upon acts like this as being some sort of, you know, politically condoned act of social practice or something that we might sort of validate today in that way. It was the the work of an African-American artist at a time when the country was blowing up, you know, much like today. And museums were not particularly keen to get on board. So there was a museum in Chattanooga, which I don't think was a museum at the time, but it has become a museum since then. It was mostly university galleries that were was interested in, in showing this. And, you know, that's part of the, the history of our universities as being a place for debate and protest and, you know, conversation that is maybe different than than the mainstream institutions that make up the museum world. To me, that's a really great way of thinking about the work and and really kind of about the medium. So assemblage has regularly, you know, very regularly been political art and, and, and socially engaged art. So on one hand, if you go back far enough, you have Dada, which is really the world's first anti-war movement. And then you mentioned Keenholz, who who takes aim at racism and the horrors caused by the illegality of birth control options for women and as 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 is on view at LACMA or is often on view at LACMA. Were politics and the ability to engage with social issues through his work part of what attracts Purifoy to assemblage as as something he wanted to do? Honestly, I think more than that was the the sort of freedom that assemblage as a concept provided, and and I mean that taking used objects and ready-made objects, liberate artists from from the sort of commercial and capitalist network, which is, you know, part and parcel of buying materials and buying, you know, stretcher bars and buying oil paint. And it allowed him to engage with a movement that was interesting, art historically and interesting in L.A. at the moment, but also interesting to communities that he was 
working in when he you know went on board as the founding director of the Watts Towers Art Center he was in the midst of a community that didn't have art stores but was surrounded by piles of junk and, and could sort of flip that situation into an opportunity to create and I think that was one of the most empowering ideas to him was the power of the creative process and how it could affect society and social change and so when you talk about politics the work many works have political undertones or overtones but there's always I think first and foremost an interest in in design in in abstraction and how these materials lay down next to each other rather than creating sort of overt social messages, even though those like lay within so many of the works. Is there a work or two that you think is or are particularly good at, at addressing present politics or present circumstances? Well, yeah, I mean, there there are, I mean, present circumstances. I mean, present to purify time, but yeah, <laughs> sorry. <I> mean, present <laughs> circumstances become relevant because so little has changed, you know, in this country or, you know, arguably has gotten worse in this country over the decades that made up Pure Floyd's career. But there are, you know, some very overtly political works. For instance, there's a piece on the Desert Floor and Joshua Tree, which is called White Colored. And it is a sobering recreation of a segregated water fountain in the South. So, Purifoy was born under Jim Crow law, and the white water fountain is a water fountain, and it says white atop it. And the African-American water fountain is a toilet bowl, and it says colored. So there's works like that, you know, which also speak to a reality of the South and an interpretation of Duchamp's ready-made that has a very distinct reference point to identity. And Duchamp was somebody that Purifoy spoke of constantly from his early years up through his death. And I think it's quite interesting and important to think about how he sort of reinterprets the tradition of the ready-made. There is a piece on the site called Voting Booth is on one side a sort of traditional voting booth with curtains and, and then you see these feet and legs of people who are, you know, presumably behind the curtains and filling out their ballots. And then you walk around to the other side and you see a, a row of toilet bowls. The work actually once had, though it blew away in, in the high winds of the desert, a, a black power salute, a sort of a black fist coming out the top of it, which is no longer there. Certainly charged the piece with the, you know, a message. But but then there are, you know, so many works on the site that have much more to do with, with sort of cubist stacking techniques and an interest in light coming through the works. There's a sculpture called Aurora Borealis that has a wall with a number of um, broken glass bottles laid into it. And Purifoy talked about how 
he called that piece of war borealis because he was specifically interested in the way the light shone through in the afternoon. And that whole relationship of how nature was interacting with his practice in the desert was extremely pivotal to his thinking in Joshua Tree. So he began to really embrace nature as part of his creative process and treated the whole idea rather scientifically. He began setting works out on the desert floor that he would create in his workshop where he had electricity and tools and then document them over time to see how they would change. And of course, they would change drastically because the winds in Joshua Tree are very high. The sun is very, very strong and reds turns to, turn to pinks and, you know, jeans turn to rags in a very, very short amount of time. So that, that whole process fascinated him, as did working with the wildlife. The animals would dig holes into his works and, and he'd wake up in the morning and they'd be different sculptures. And he began to really love that whole aspect of, of the Mojave. One of my favorite parts of your catalog essay is where you wrote about how Purifoy was interested in you know, Robert Smithson and, and, and Michael Heiser and their ideas about artwork existing in, in kind of geologic time and how he applied those ideas to the things he wanted to make and the conditions to which they would be exposed to Joshua Tree. Yeah, I mean, he was interested in many of the same forces, that, like erosion, that people like Heiser and Smithson were interested in. He did not speak to their practices himself, but I wanted to make a conscious effort to articulate the connection between his site in Joshua Tree and his practice in Joshua Tree and the tradition of land art, because it's something that many people ask about and comment upon, and other people think, well, this doesn't look like a minimal you know, sphere on the desert floor. This doesn't look like a row of mirrors, you know, in, you know, the environment, and therefore it's a different tradition. And, of course, the the aesthetic is not minimal. It's sort of far from minimal at Purifoy site. And yet the move out of the white cube into the desert is part of this larger conversation. And I think it's very important to, to linger on that and to think about the fact that he created this work largely alone, you know, at the age of 72, working day in and day out and only was able to hire two assistants in 1999, which was, you know, right before his untimely death. And when you compare that sort of experience and that sort of financial reality to the reality of so many of these large-scale land art projects, which are bankrolled by foundations like the DIA and by you know patrons like Virginia Duan, that's a very, very different reality because it requires it requires capital to do these things, and 
and his site was not reliant on capital in that way and wasn't able to access capital in that way, perhaps more importantly. And you wrote about in your essay about how Purifoy took his ideas about engaging the community as physical contributors to the work in, in Watts. He took that idea and took it out to the desert and made friends and loved driving around and finding material and picking up material from from his neighbors. Yeah, I think it became, you know, I mean, the site is free and open to the public, which is very much in sync with his whole philosophy as an artist, which stems from 66 Signs of Neon. And it was relationships with the community that uh, informed many of the works on the site. There's there's a big sort of bombed out log cabin like structure that's dug into the desert floor called Shelter. And that is constructed from the remnants of a neighbor's house fire. There were works that were created when local bowling alleys closed and Purifoy you know, took his truck over and picked up all the bowling balls and picked up the pins and then created a number of totem sculptures that, that use these materials. So that whole set of relationships is embedded into the site and is, is part of its history. In closing, I want to ask about one more specific piece, and it's a piece that, that he made closer to the end than to the beginning. It's uh, Strange Fruit from 2002 a piece that seems sadly relevant this week. What What is the piece, and I guess where did it come from, both in terms of its title and and the American history in which Purifoy was engaging? Well, the piece is a assemblage that is made from wood, feathers, and a, a bucket of tar. So it resembles a sort of, the, the, the foreground is a black wood foreground made of painted flats of, of two by fours or or something a little bit smaller than that. And then affixed to that is a sort of ghost-like sort of form of of white feathers, which is glued to that. And then hanging below uh, from the wood is this bucket of, of tar. And the reference strange fruit is to a Billie Holiday song about the history of lynching in this country and connected to that is a equally dark history of tar and feathering which is another sort of violent torture tactic that white groups like the KKK use against the African-American communities all over this country primarily in the south so it is a reference to that reality. It's also this sort of strangely beautiful abstraction that has this haunting aspect of to it, you know, when you, when you read the title and understand exactly what is going on. And that bucket of paint is 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 extraordinary. It's this you, you mentioned Robert Rauschenberg earlier. It seems kind of borrowed from Rauschenberg's Canyon, only it it activates and maybe almost implicates the viewer in a way that the the bird in canyon does not. Yeah, definitely. And and you see that connection. But yeah, the the bucket of of tar very much has the same sort of composition going on as that Rauschenberg work that you mentioned. Yeah, Lipschitz, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler.
The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Habsburg Splendor, Masterpieces from Vienna's Imperial Collections, showcasing masterworks assembled over five centuries of empire building by Europe's longest reigning dynasty. The exhibition of some 100 objects from Vienna's Kunsthistorisches Museum is on a national tour this year and opens June 14th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Habsburgs for more. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. Laffer Art Museum at the University of Houston presents Sound Speed Marker by Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler. In this critically acclaimed trilogy of video installations and related photographs, Texas and its associated cinematic imagery serve as platforms for reflections on filmmaking itself. Also at Blaffer through September 5th, a collaboration by Henning Bowl and Sergi Cherupnin combines sculptures, drawings, and sound into a multidimensional storytelling platform. More at blafferartmuseum.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Annalise Dumas, the J. Paul Getty Museum curator responsible for bringing Gian Lorenzo Bernini's long-lost 1621 bust of Pope Paul V into the Getty's collection last week. Annalise Dumas, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. So congratulations on the acquisition. Bernini makes this bust in 1621. My my first two questions are kind of different versions of the same question. One, why does he make it? And two, how is it that a 23-year-old sculptor is sculpting a pope? Indeed, (laughs) quite astonishing at such a young age. So the bust was commissioned by uh, Cardinal Scipione Borghese, the nephew of the pope, Paul V. I can't tell you exactly why the uh, cardinal nephew uh, wanted the portrait of his dead uncle, because uh, actually the Pope died in January 1621, and the commission happened a few months later because the first payments to the sculptor date from 16, uh, June 1621. So I guess he just wanted to honor the memory of his uncle. And on the other way, I can explain why he asked Bernini, because actually Cardinal uh, Scipione Borghese had already commissioned many works of art to the brilliant uh, sculptor, and and he had already some uh, marble uh, groups done for him for his uh, villa. And exactly at the same moment, actually, a fantastic group of the rape of uh, Proserpina was commissioned exactly in parallel to uh, this commission of, uh, of a portrait of a, of a pope. So Bernini makes this sculpture in, in 1621. How does it live in the world? Does it further Bernini's reputation? Does it, does it further the, the reputation of the commissioner? How, how would it have functioned? So uh, the reputation of Bernini was already quite well established, I would say. He had already commissions from this cardinal nephew, uh, Cardinal Scipione Borghese, but also Cardinal Barberini, who would become later on Pope Urbane VIII. But let's say that this particular sculpture was one of the very first uh, official portraits of a pope. And that's 
really one of the very first of a very, very long series because Bernini uh, would live uh, quite a long life while, you know, the popes were elected uh, when they were already quite old. So meaning, yeah, so meaning that Bernini went through, I think, seven or eight pontificates. <laughs> so, and then after this burst, if you wish, all the popes wanted to have their portraits by Bernini. So it's re really the first official commission of this kind. And, you know, statal portraits, they've already always been very important. And uh, so they are nowadays, you know, when you want to portray, uh, when the photograph is called to uh, portray a president or the pope of, uh, you know, today, it's already um, something, a very important commission. So that established, I would say, the, you know, the, yes, the skills that Bernini had as a portraitist. While he had already, you know, uh, his fame established for other kind of uh, things like marble groups uh, or other uh, statues. Then the bust was displayed. We know that thanks to archival documents, such as inventories or also guidebooks. As soon as 16, yeah, we have a lot of uh, documents on this bust. It's, that's also, you know, part of this fantastic uh, experience for the Getty to acquire this particular sculpture because, you know, it's not every day that you can acquire a piece which is fully documented and from a, you know, a genius <laughs> artist as Bernini is. So that's really uh, fantastic. And so as soon as 1650, we know that this burst was um, displayed on top of a porphyry uh, table in the main gallery of the Villa Borghese. And as a kind of pendant to another bust, the bust of Cardinale Scipione Borghese, the nephew of the Pope. Because 10 years after the commission of this uh, portrait of the Pope, the Cardinal nephew asked Bernini to carve his own portrait. So we are like in 1632, 11 years uh, later. And that display stayed on until the end of the 19th century. And that, that, that bust is at the Borghese in Rome. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And we had it uh, at the J. Paul Getty Museum for the exhibition we did on uh, the art of portraiture. In 2008, I think? Exactly. Yeah. Yes, summer 2008. So this bust is related to a bronze, a Bernini bronze that's now in Copenhagen. Have you seen it? What, what, what? precisely is the relationship? Yes, I have seen that bust because, you know, until uh, now, we didn't know where this bust that the Getty has just acquired was. So for the Berlin exhibition at the Getty in 2008, we had the bronze from Copenhagen. So the history is that, so first, the marble bust, the one just acquired, was commissioned and paid from 1621 in June. And then a few months later, again, Cardinal Scipione Borghese commissioned two bronzes, the bronze version of this same Pope portrait and another bronze bust, that of the living Pope, Gregory XV, the successor of Paul V. And I think this particular commission of these two bronze bursts as pendants were a kind of, you know, diplomatic move, I could say, of Cardinal Scipione Borghese when, you know, he was very influent and very important as the Cardinal nephew when his uncle was still alive. When his uncle dies, of course, he may have felt that he would have had less support uh, from the living Pope, from the Ludovisi uh, family, Gregory XV Ludovisi. And so to 
in a way declared that he would still be, uh, you know, uh, at the service of the Vatican State. I guess that this kind of commission to put the two popes together would link also his own, uh, you know, personality to both the popes, not only his uncle, but the uh, successor of his uncle. And the bronze version is a little bit very similar, but with slight differences. It was done by a very famous founder, Sebastiano Sebastiani, under the uh, orders of John Lorenzo Bernini. So everything was done anyway, you know, with a very important uh, control of the, of the, the great artist Bernini. And from, I would guess, although we don't have the evidence of that, uh, from the same clay model. Bernini may have, you know, modeled the portrait in clay. From that clay, you would have had the marble portrait carved, which is the one just acquired by Vegetti. And then from that uh, clay, you would have had a cast, you know, uh, done in, uh, in, uh, in bronze. So they are very uh, similar, uh, in particular in the head, also the vestments, but there are slight differences. For instance, the circle of the bronze bust displays the uh, coat of arms of Paul V. And same thing, as a kind of pendant of the other uh, bronze bust of Gregory XV that shows the coat of arms of the Ludovisi family. While the marble bust has its circle uh, very pure in marble, exactly part of the same piece of marble as the bust is. And the other differences are in the figures of the two apostles, St. Paul and St. Peter, where the saint patrons of the city of Rome and of the Vatican, and they move in the space a little bit differently, and they, they, their feet are on different uh, vegetal ornamentation, actually. So we come to the finding of the thing. The piece has not been on public display for about four centuries, and it has been missing for about a century. Obvious question, how does a Bernini go missing for 100 years? Oh, well... <laughs> Many works of art can disappear as soon as they, they go to a private collector. Uh, you know, we, we can't strike these uh, works of art if private collectors do not know exactly what they have and if they don't want to, to make that, you know, of public knowledge. No, but what happened is that when the bust was sold at auction in 1893, that was the moment in which the Borghese family had huge financial problems and they sold many things, including uh, also their palace and their villa. So actually right now, the Villa Borghese in Rome belongs to Italian state, but was bought, you know, during this same kind of sales that the Borghese family had to do. And in 1893, at that auction, the bust was already misinterpreted because it was uh, sold, catalogued, as a bust by Alessandro Algardi, a kind of, uh, you know, competitor of Bernini in the 17th century Rome. So already, you know, there was this kind of mistake. And then it was sold, as we know from uh, some uh, scholars of the early 20th century, to a Viennese uh, collector, and perhaps this Viennese collector, you know, believed he had an Algardi bust or didn't know anything, was just interested in the image of the Pope. Who knows? And then, you know, it just, uh, it can also happen that uh, your hairs uh, do not understand what you, what you do have. And then the information gets lost. And it's for sure what happens because even when uh, it was uh, found in Bratislava, uh, you know, they didn't know exactly what they had. So, you know, it's just a question of, yes, information being lost over, over time. So the language the Getty has been using is that the bust, quote, surfaced in a private collection two years ago. What, 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 what does that mean? Does that mean you found it? Does that mean, what, what does it mean that it surfaced? 
So <laughs> it means that, I don't know how to explain that clearly. It means that, so I didn't find it personally. I was contacted telling me that I may be interested into a fantastic masterpiece, but I should go and examine as soon as possible. But uh, what happened is that that bus belonged to uh, an artist uh, who was active in Bratislava, who died in 2004 a certain Zmetak, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, and the heirs of this uh, artist uh, decided to sell the belongings of this artist 10 years later, in 2014. And then at that point, at an auction in which you know, the, the, the organizers of that auction didn't know what it was, and someone, and I don't know that person, so I can't tell you more, may have understood it was something important, that I don't know because, uh, you know, it's uh, still confidential. And uh, both that piece and uh, started, I guess, to investigate and understood it may have been indeed something very important. And it's how then it was recognized that it was a Bernini. And then I was contacted by uh, Sotheby's. But, you know, that's, it, it's fantastic news because it means that uh, works of art that we do consider lost. And when, you, when, you, when we say that as historians, we always think that, you know, it has been destroyed or it's broken or and we will never see that piece uh, again. Well, this is the, uh, the proof that sometimes really uh, an artwork considered lost can, you know, re-emerge in fantastic state of conservation. So it's, it's good news for all the other artworks that we do consider lost. This kind of you know, miracle can happen. That's fantastic. I love it. It's very cinematic. <laughs> it is. Annalise Dema, thanks so much for speaking with me. You're welcome. My pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.